1: and 365 day returns.
2: Back in 2012, I had the privilege to sit down with legendary football manager Tommy Doherty for TalkSport's My Sporting Life series. Tommy made his name as a player, most notably with Preston North End, where he made over 300 appearances, as well as representing Arsenal and Celtic in those playing days. He also won international honours with Scotland, captaining his country as well as being a member of the squads that went to both the 1954 and 1958 World Cups. But it's his 28-year career as a manager that most people remember with a special fondness. In particular, his spells in charge of Chelsea and Manchester United, where he built young, exciting, vibrant sides that both went on to win major honours. Thomas Henderson Docherty was born on the 24th of August in 1928 in the Goebbels in Glasgow. I started our interview by asking about his upbringing in that infamous location.
3: Yes, it was it was rough, but no no different, I don't think, from the east end of London, or the east end of most cities. At the end of the day, it's not the place, it's the people that absolutely matter. And the east end of Glasgow, the Gorbals was... Uh, a fantastic place because you knew nothing else i mean yeah little things like uh if you wanted a new pair of shoes you you went to the swimming baths on saturday morning and uh, nicked a pair uh, as soon as the fella blew the whistle and opened the door you're gonna get a new pair of shoes and uh, whatever or a better pair than you already had yes it was rough but it was no different you didn't you didn't think you were uh you thought you were well off because up in the morning some porridge for your breakfast anything that was going for your lunch or your dinner and you just took what was going, and I think everyone was in the same boat. I mean, your, your dad, uh, Thomas, died when you were nine,
2: leaving your mum, Georgina, and yourself and sisters, Margaret and Sally. I mean, uh, uh, the, the poverty uh, and the difficult circumstances, um, as you say, was the same for everyone. But to, add, to all of that was added at a very young age for you when you were 11. The, the Second World War broke out. What are your memories of that?
3: Uh, my memories of the Second World War were uh, when we got evacuated from Glasgow, and we went to a place called uh, Stirling. Right. And we went on the Sunday, and we came home on the Monday. Uh, my mom... <laughs> That wasn't very good. <laughs> no. Well, my mother said they were going to get bombed. We'll get bombed in the own house in Glasgow, not not in the uh, Stirlingshire. And uh, she, got, where she got the money from, I don't know, but she got a taxi and took us back home too where we'd left the day before. And we stayed there until uh, during the war and, and, and well after the war, actually. I mean,
2: we're, we're well aware, of you know, because we see endless documentaries about it, about what the population of London went through yeah. uh, during the war. Um, wh- wh- what was it like in Glasgow? I mean, as a as a, as a, teen, a young teenager, did you actually live pretty much normally or was it not like that?
3: You just got on with it, actually. Uh, it was as simple as that, actually, because uh, everyone was in the same boat. Uh, you had your gas mask, which you took to school with you, and... and uh, periods of the day, you had to get it out and put it on just uh, as a preliminary measure, so when anything God forbid did happen you knew how to get it on as quickly as you possibly could, but everyone seemed to be in the same boat, and of course the bombing of the Clydebank shipyards, which was quite near us as well, which, were, which was dreadful actually, but uh, you just got on with it it was as simple as that actually, and of course I left school at uh, uh, special dispensation, I left school at uh, 12 years of age and I got a job of delivering groceries uh, in the afternoons. And what, what, sorry, why were you allowed to leave school at 12? Because my, my mother was a, a widow. Aha. Uh-huh. And we got, she got a special dispensation where I could go out and earn a few shillings more than a widow then.
2: I take it that uh, um, with the Irish connection in your family that you were a supporter of Glasgow Celtic?
3: Yeah, well, I was born, you know, it was a situation where if you were a Catholic boy, yeah. you supported Glasgow Celtic. If you're a Protestant lad or a non-Catholic lad, you supported Glasgow Rangers, and that was the situation in, in, in Glasgow at the time, and uh, it always has always was, but not now, of course. Did you did you get to see the Celtic team of the time? Well, I used to get out of school uh, on if they were playing uh, midweek uh, Wednesday occasionally, and uh, we used to go to school at three o'clock, run down to Parkhead Paradise, as we called it, mm-hmm. Celtic Park. They opened the gates twenty minutes from the end to let people out. And when they let those people out, we ran unending and got the last twenty minutes, and they were my boyhood heroes.
2: Absolutely, and, and uh, this is going to be incredible to people listening to your voice now, Tommy. And I must say, thank you very much. You are, with with all due respect, the oldest person who's done my sporting life for us. <laughs> and so we're talking about things that people will no longer even recognise. For instance, suddenly, after the Second World War ended, you're you're in your late teens, you're a talented footballer. And you
3: have to do national service, and you join the army for two years. Well, I didn't join the army. I, I didn't have a choice. Actually, I was. Yeah, sc- yeah the army sc- joined you, didn't yeah, it? it. <laughs> That's right. And I had a choice of uh, being a Bevan boy, because uh, at the time I was working for Beechey's Bakery, uh, driving a horse and uh, delivering bread to the, the various shops. And uh, ironically enough, over in Copnelar Road at Ayres Park, uh, where Rangers Ground is, I used to deliver the bread to the, the shops in there and all over Glasgow. And they were fantastic times, actually. And of course, always been a Glasgow Celtic lad uh, as, as well. From since I can remember, actually, uh, it was fantastic and uh, you, great,
2: great days. You joined the Highland um, Light Infantry, if I have got that right. Um, and in fact, you served your national your national service, not just lounging around on your backside uh, here and there, but you actually went to Palestine as the as the fighting was starting.
3: Yeah, well, what happened actually, as I said, had the choice of being a Bevan boy or in the army, and I thought, there's no way I'm going down the pit. So uh, I, Don't I, blame I, you. I, I I was called up, I didn't join it, I was just conscripted into the army. And I did uh, six weeks at uh, Whittington Barracks in Lichfield uh, there, and after six weeks there, I uh, was posted to Redford Barracks in Edinburgh, where I did the uh, three months in, uh, in Edinburgh uh, with HLI and uh, Highland Light Infantry. And uh, we got a call one morning, about two in the morning, and uh, into, into trucks, drove all the way to Southampton. Next thing we knew, we were on a ship, and we were heading for Palestine.
2: Um, and again, in Palestine, uh, the, the the issues that were to lead, and the conflict that was to lead to the foundation of the State of Israel was in full swing. Yeah. One of the most famous incidents was when the giant hotel, the King David, in Jerusalem was bombed.
3: Um, nearly 100 people killed in July of 1946. You were there. Yeah, I, fortunately for me, as I say, I was in the right side of the hotel when it blew, was blown up and uh, we, thank God we were OK, but we we lost some nice lads actually that particular time.
2: I mean, how close were you to
3: being killed, Tommy, do you think? Who knows, uh, you know, uh, what, five minutes, maybe 500 yards.
2: I'm Danny Kelly, this is Talk Sport and you're listening to a special edition of My Sporting Life featuring former Chelsea, Manchester United and Scotland manager Tommy Doherty. By July of 1948 you had completed your national service and shortly after joined Boyhood
3: Heroes Celtic. Explain how that came about. At the time in Palestine, we one of our officers out there was a fellow called Adam Little, a uh, Glasgow Rangers midfield player, a wing half, and he was a medical man out there and a lovely, lovely person actually. And he, I, I played for the battalion team, uh, the first div in Palestine, and that's all I did, I did very little army work really, I was playing football and sports and running all the time. And he recommended me to uh, to Glasgow Celtic, and and you and
2: I, I understand that when you got home there were. Uh, a variety of people after you um, wanting to sign you um, Burnley, Everton Manchester United uh, but obviously as a, as a Celtic fan it, there was no choice for you was it? It had to be, it had to be Parkhead
3: Oh it was an no-brainer yeah it's, it's definitely Celtic Park you know paradise Th- hail, hail the boys actually a, What ca-
2: what kind of a club
3: was Celtic in those days? Because I think uh, they'd gone a long time since they'd won anything hadn't they? Yeah I think the last thing they won was the Empire Exhibition Cup in 1939 when Johnny Creighton Johnny Crumb scored the goal and the team that day was uh, Kenny Mahogan morris and Lions Lions, and Patterson, Delaney-McDonald, Crum-Divers and Murphy. Great side and that's, I can remember that. And so, you, so you, you you joined Celtic, you make your first team debut, uh, hooray,
2: on, in August of '48 against Glasgow Rangers. What do you remember of the pride of, of joining uh, and playing against uh, Rangers in your first big game?
3: Well, I played at Aberdeen on the Friday night for the uh, reserves uh-huh. at Petaudre and of course the, there was an injury or an illness or something. And I was asked to play outside right for uh, uh, Celtic at at, uh, at Ibrox Park, Glasgow. And uh, of course, I was just coming back from Palestine. They thought the beautiful tan and whatnot, they thought I'd come from somewhere else, actually. (laughs) And uh, I got a bit of abuse that day uh, from the Rangers supporters, as you always did, and vice versa. The Celtic supporters gave them a lot of abuse as well. But uh, it was a bit of a shock to play in a position I'd never played in my life, actually, outside Ryan. You, having joined your boyhood club, yeah. um,
2: uh, it, it didn't really work out insofar as that within a year and a bit, you were on your way. Um, November 1949 was a big time for you. You set, yeah. a, to set a date to get married with uh, a girl you'd met called Agnes. And oh, more importantly, um, and sorry, as importantly, I guess you'd have to say, um, you leave
3: Glasgow Celtic for Preston North End. Why, why, why was that? Why, why did that come about? Well, it was a strange situation because uh, those particularly days the, 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 with the home internationals, uh, Scotland, England, Ireland and Wales, and we had a wonderful player called Bobby Evans, a red-headed lad playing midfield in my position, or I played in his position, whichever way you want to look at, at it. At Celtic, yeah. yes, yeah, Celtic, and of course... The game, the internationals were played on a Saturday, so the league programme still went on. And when Bobby was playing for Scotland, I got my opportunity to play for Glasgow Celtic. And that was the reason I played only three games that year, because the home internationals were three matches. Bobby played in them. Well, he was playing when I played for Celtic. And, of course, I didn't really get the opportunity. And all of a sudden, I was playing at uh, Greenock Morton at Capelo, uh, and I got spotted by James Taylor, the president of uh, Press North End. And he signed me for £3,000 from, uh, from Glasgow Celtic. And the only reason I went was I was uh, about to get married and I, they were giving me a clubhouse uh, with a rent of 25 shillings a week. Yeah, so you actually do get married to Agnes and you're brought
2: into Preston to replace Bill Shankly, um, no less. And you make your uh, Preston debut after spending a few days in the reserves to get acclimatised to English football. You you make your debut on Christmas Eve in 1949 Mm -hmm. um, at Elland Road Leeds. What kind of club was Preston when you got there?
3: I don't know. I never even heard of Tom Finney when I got there, I believe it or not. Really? I just got told I was being transferred and there was nothing I could do about it. Those were the days when uh, you couldn't leave the club, but the club could get rid of you or sell you on if you if you wanted to. And the fee was 3,000 quid. And I did well. I got about 250 pounds out of that, which was a lot of money in those days, actually. And the next thing, I, you arrived at Preston, and uh, fortunately for me, the, the trainer was a Scots gentleman called Jimmy Millen. Is Gordon's father, he was a trainer and he was a terrific fellow and he helped us a tremendous amount and the me is to Tom Finney who is now Sir Tom
2: What's amazing of course is that in those days a team could come out of the second layer of English football and very quickly establish itself as a top power as I say you were promoted in 1951 and in just two years later um, in one of the closest league title races of all time you were runners up to Arsenal but it really was extraordinarily close wasn't it? point nothing they never go I mean, I should explain to the teenagers listening that it's not what. This is before goal difference. It was goal average, where <laughs> yeah, they, di- they right. you divided your goals scored by your goals against. You and Arsenal finished level on points, yeah. and so they had got a couple of extra goals somewhere on the line. Again, Burnley at the Highbury. And uh, what, tell me about that season and what it felt to be so close to winning the title,
3: Tommy. Well, you, I mean, you didn't think about. All you thought about was winning each game rather than winning the title. Mm-hmm. And you knew that if you won each game, you, you were going to be there or thereabouts and you were in the, the, the next the top division. And uh, we had a good side and we played uh, we played tremendous football. We played, uh, with the exception of Sir Tom Finney, we played uh, tiki tacky football, two-touch football. And we, no matter where we went, it was, I think it was a mixture of Scottish players and English players and one or two Irish players. We, uh, we were very, very attractive and great to watch.
2: Do you uh, look back now with any regret at not having uh, got those couple of extra goals that would have given you the title?
3: well being a midfield player you, and then you didn't think about that because the, the, the manager we had at press at the time called Cliff Britton he was very defensive minded and if you crossed the halfway line <laughs> he, he said your your job is to stop the opposition from playing not you uh, creating stuff for us I leave that to uh, Tom Finney and that, 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 the, the amazing thing about me was he used to say he said to me twice and I told him he got lost actually he said if Tom Finney uh, trained harder he'd, he'd been a better player I, wow. couldn't, I couldn't believe it, you know. <laughs> from what I've
2: heard, because I never saw the great man play, couldn't it could hardly have been a better player? So it doesn't seem very likely. Um, maybe, maybe Messi. Maybe you think he's as good as Messi. As good oh, as, as good no, as Messi's that. as good as him. Oh, right. OK, good. Um, in total, you played nine years at Preston North End, over 325 games for them. Why did you eventually decide to leave, Tommy? Well, uh, I didn't decide
3: to leave. Uh, what happened was uh, I always wanted, believe it or not, when I finished playing football, I wanted to have our own and use the agents to tobacco in the shop. And there was one for sale opposite Deepdale, right opposite the ground. Right. And it was going for about 400 quid. And that was due... I was in my last year at... at, at uh, I was 10 years... come up for 10 years at Preston. Yeah. And I was due, I was due a benefit in those days. A testimonial, days. yeah. They called it a testimonial, but it was a benefit. Yes. Sir. And you got 750... 1,000 pounds after 10 years for being... in uh, the opinion of the, the directors, you were a loyal player and loyal servant. And I asked for a loan of 300 pounds... To buy the shop across from Deepdale to make sure when I finished playing, things would be okay. And the manager was a bit dogmatic and he says, No, the board won't allow it there. He didn't even put it to the board. So I said, Well, if you think that highly of me, there's no point in hanging about here much longer. So I asked for a transfer and it was granted.
2: I'm Danny Kelly, this is Talk Sports, and you're listening to a special edition of My Sporting Life, featuring former Chelsea, Manchester United and Scotland manager, Tommy Doherty. During Tommy's playing career, he got 25 caps for Scotland. I asked him if he felt he should have got
3: more. No, not particularly. I, I probably get picked sometimes when I shouldn't have done, you know, when I wasn't probably playing uh, particularly well for my club, because in those days, uh, they didn't have a manager. Uh, they, had, uh, they called them selectors. Right. And... I was playing for Preston, as you said, 10 years. And they used to come down on a Friday night, stay in a hotel with his wife, and they had a nice weekend out of it. And go back with a report uh, on my performance, good, bad and indifferent. And uh, when they picked a team, uh, they didn't have a manager, as I said, the selectors picked a team, and you would get the paper on the following Thursday, and you could tell by the newspaper whether you were selected for Scotland or not. You didn't get a letter of notification. You just you had to look up the squad in the newspapers. And then at the end, you got a notification about a week later. Yeah, and if it if they didn't have
2: a manager, who decided how the team would play? Who the, gave the team
3: talk half time? What happened? The trainer. Aha. Uh-huh. Uh, a gentleman called Dawson Walker, who used to be. Uh, the physiotherapist for Clyde Football Club,
2: but I think I, th- I think um, despite the lack of uh, that level of organisation, I think Scotland had a pretty good team at that time in the fifties. Is that right? Is that fair to say?
3: Yeah, but some good, we didn't have a good team with some good players. By which you mean? Uh, there was no organisation because we didn't have a manager. And so
2: you just turn up and, you just and hope for the best.
3: Up. And the thing was, you know, when you were selected and you got a letter from the Football Association, which was the SFA, uh, you got a, a, a letter from them saying you've been selected to represent your country against uh, whatever, Uruguay or Brazil and uh, report for training on uh, Monday morning at uh, whatever, at this SF, uh, SFA uh, Park Gardens and bring a towel and your training kit. And bring, soap. Bring and a soap. towel. Bring a towel and soap <laughs> and your training kit. Yeah. <laughs> um, True. Yeah. You did.
2: I, 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 I'm just you. I'm, I, I, you know, forgive me. It's just very hard to believe now. Well, for uh, Scots, aren't we?
3: We we'll, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll, uh, watch our pennies. So would you bring, uh, yeah, our own training kit, a towel and
2: soap. Was the? I mean, we all know that the the rivalry between England and Scotland, which is a shame that it's been allowed to peter out, really because of the lack of the home internationals. How how intense was that rivalry at
3: football in the fifties? Ah, terrific! I mean, I think the home internationals were fantastic because it kept everyone going actually. And if you played at Wembley for Scotland against England at Wembley, after the game, the supporters used to save up their the the spare cash for two years' time when the game would be played at Hampden. So, you know, it was a case of having a little bank book and after the game, you, you'd maybe put a shilling or two bob on the Monday morning or when you, your job was finished on the Friday and you got your pay, they call it the Wembley money or the Hamden money and you usually save up to, to you know, pay I, for the trip during
2: the end of season. I don't think you played in the famous 9-1 defeat at Wembley, did you?
3: No, I played in the, the, I played in the 7-2. I scored that day against uh, England that day, actually. But no, I never played in the other one with Frank Haffey. I yeah, Frank Haffey, yeah. finally. Oh. Uh, somebody said, what time is it? I said, it's seven past half eight. <laughs> It was seven, not
2: nine. I'm nine. starting to exaggerate. <laughs> you made your debut um, for for Scotland uh, against Wales Hamden. In, in 1951 at Hampden. Um, didn't play for another couple of years. And it looked like your c- c- international career might be drifting away in 1953 and 54. Um, and you didn't play much in 53, 54. And suddenly, they c- Scotland qualifies for the 54 World Cup. Um, in Switzerland, a very famous World Cup, of course. Um, and you are in the squad. Tell us about your time in, 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 that, in that tournament in Switzerland.
3: Well, I didn't get selected because 54 I broke my leg. Aha, uh-huh. that'll, that'll be it then. And uh, I was out for about 12 weeks and I got back again and got fit. And uh, we still didn't have a manager, by the way. Oh, God. And uh, anyway, 54 World Cup, we played. Uh, I'm telling a lie, Andrew Beatty. Ex Huddersfield Town was the manager, right? But when we got out just to, to to Switzerland, yes, he they meeting with the powers that be, the selectors, and they had a bit of a row over something, and he uh, walked out. So Dawson Walker, the Clyde trainer, took over as um, as, as manager uh, of, of the team. I mean, it was a, it was a, a strangely organised tournament. Sponge man. I mean, Dawson was a sponge man. He was a physio gentleman. Nice man, but he knew nothing about football and he was put in charge of the playing side of the club. Which might
2: explain why you only played two games a 1 0 defeat to Austria in Zurich and in Bern a few days later a 7 0 defeat to Uruguay. And we were lucky to get nil. Yeah, and was it
3: really 7 0 or could it have been more? Uh, we got away quite lightly actually. Okay. I, th- I thought that had been the score in the first half, never mind the second. And I was uh, asked to mark a call the uh, Schiofino. Who was like probably like Suarez is today right. at Liverpool, and the, the the trainer who knew nothing about football said to me, everywhere he goes, go with him. He goes to the bathroom, go with him. If you nullify him, we can get a result today in this match, Tommy. And anyway, he scored three goals. Uh, uh, did the job film. done, Tom? Job done. You, no, he's got <laughs> supports to be doing my job. Anyway, he scored a hat trick and. Uh, <laughs> At half time, the, the the trainer got hold of me. He said, When well, did I tell you and the veins were sticking out the side of his neck? He was giving me a right going over. And they said, uh, You know, I said, Well, I'm doing my best. I says, uh, Every time I get near them, everyone's shaking hands with him and patting them on the back. Seven nil, there. I tell you what. When the Uruguayan national anthem was finished, we were all shattered because it was so warm and and bal that day in Switzerland. Well, that that was fifty four, and you, yeah. you you know the, the the time moves
2: on, and uh, the next World Cup you're playing is a, another very famous World Cup, fifty eight in Sweden. Yeah. Um. Uh. Scotland don't do so well. Um. You didn't play in the first game, which was a draw. Um, then then they, they lost to, that was against Yugoslavia, then they lost to Paraguay mm. and France, and which meant that Scotland had gone out. But the players were then given tickets, and you kind of stayed and watched the rest of the tournament as, as, as a fan, yeah? Yeah, that's right. Because uh, it, it was an amazing tournament for, for Great Britain, because all four of the sides from these islands were in the finals. Um, England went out of the group stages, as did Scotland. Wales and Northern Ireland reached the
3: quarterfinals, and you watched the emergence of a, a 17-year-old called Pelé. That's right, but also that uh, particular time, um, uh, Wales went to the semi-finals, right. I think it was, John Charles, Ivor church, people like that, and the coach was the a gentleman called Jimmy Murphy, God rest his soul, who I later caught up with at Old Trafford, who took over some some after the Munich air crash, and he was a wonderful, wonderful man, and never got half the credit that he should have done for the job that he did at Old Trafford, lovely, lovely man, and he, he did a great job for Wales, and did some great players. I mean, and as I say, Brazil
2: won the final, I think five-two yeah. against the host Sweden, yeah. with the seventeen-year-old Pele. I mean, yeah. had we, had you ever seen a player like him before? Did you know he was going to become the player that, that many people believe to be the
3: greatest ever to lace up boots? No, not particular, not at that, not at seventeen years. No, you couldn't his. see that. No, you couldn't, you couldn't foresee that at all. But he, he, he justified everything they said about him actually, because I've always said, and to this day, Finney's the best player I've ever seen.
2: Well, I mean, of course, you played with him, so and so you're in so a position uh, to judge, aren't and, you? Uh,
3: and a bit biased, of course, I might add as well. But Sir Tom was a different class, actually. But Pele was like uh, the Messi of today. You can only talk about the present yes. time. Yes, and Pele was like the Messi of today. There's some great players, Brazil.
2: And that, so that was towards the end of your of Scotland career. You played a few more games, um, the, including um, uh, your last game, which I think was a one 0 defeat to uh, England in April of 59, but by the time we, we, we talked about, it, you'd left Preston North End, yeah. and gone to Arsenal. That's right. Um, what kind of club was Arsenal in those days, Tom?
3: Well, I was uh, doing my coaching badge, in the latter year at Preston North End, because, I wanted, I had plans if I, if I could, I'd like to stay in the game, in the coaching capacity. Right. And Ron Greenwood was, God rest his soul, was fantastic to me, he he helped me tremendously, to get through my coaching badge, and, the way that he felt the game should be played, and he was a wonderful coach, Ron. And uh, I was at Lillyshaw, and he said to me, uh, "Yeah, he chatted me up, actually, he says, uh, do you fancy coming to Arsenal? I said, cool, not half, because after the way he'd been treated with Preston, with yeah. there Ben been a testimonial, uh, I felt a bit soured, actually, maybe wrongly. And anyway, before you could see Jack Robinson, Arsenal offered £50,000 for me. And you were there, and you... And- uh, you, you, this is, this is called coming towards
2: the end of your playing career, and you mentioned there about learning to coach and all the rest of it. Yeah. So during your three years at Arsenal, where you make nearly a hundred appearances for the club, were you always thinking about uh, one day I'd like to be what you eventually become most remembered for, about coaching a manager?
3: Yeah, very much so. Ron Greenwood, as I said, even uh, he was a staff coach at Shaw and when, of course, we get transferred to Arsenal, he was very instrumental in uh, shading my ways. Now the game should be played and how the coaching side of the game should be carried out and he was absolutely incredible help to me and uh, so at the end of that th-
2: in February 1961 as I say three years at Arsenal Um, you know I can't ask you how they got on because at those days it's hard to remember now they were kind of a mid-table club at the Arsenal
3: yeah we we went our, probably our best was about fourth we went to about fourth I yeah. think in the league actually
2: and then you, you get an opportunity to go to Chelsea um, as a player coach uh, under Ted Drake, yeah, and yeah. Uh, that, that was something you couldn't you couldn't pass up because you knew it was time for you to start uh, d- looking after the team rather than just be part of the team.
3: Yeah, that's true. <clears throat> it was an amazing situation actually because uh, Ron Greenwood told me that Chelsea were looking for a coach, and uh, would they be interested? I said yes, I would be actually uh, when I finished playing. And uh, he, Joe Mears was the Chelsea chairman at the time, who was also chairman of the Football Association. Right. So he asked me to go over for an interview for, on the coaching side of the uh, of the club, and then in the boardroom and and uh, the four directors were sitting there with Mister Mears and the Mister Mears said to me, Tommy, I know nothing about football, although I am chairman of the football association, and my four colleagues here know a damn sight less than I do. I thought I've got a chance here, and uh, Ted Drake said I wasn't his choice uh, uh, as as uh, as coach for for Chelsea. that's not very helpful is it no well it wasn't very encouraging no but anyway to cut a long story short uh, I was appointed uh, uh, first team coach at Stamford Bridge for for Chelsea by by Mr Joe Mears over Mr Drake's head well we'll we'll hear about that conflict
2: in just a little while because uh, it is the start of a journey as a club manager that as says has left you with a legendary and indelible mark in the English game next here on Talk Sport on My Sporting Life we'll be looking at your days at Stamford Bridge where you succeed Ted Drake as manager and go on to build uh, really exciting. It's a side that uh, uh, Chelsea fans remember with uh, with extraordinary affection and goes on to challenge for the major honours in the English game. You're listening to My Sporting Life. My guest tonight is the unforgettable and the one and only Tommy Doherty. You're listening to a special My Sporting Life from 2012 with legendary football manager Tommy Doherty. Now, we've heard about Tommy's playing days at Celtic, Preston and Arsenal. In this next part of the show, we discuss the beginning of Tommy's managerial career at Chelsea. First as assistant, then taking over from Ted Drake in February of 1962. I asked him how he found the club when he arrived in the early 60s.
3: Good club. Very good club, actually, but the, the team itself was uh, loaded with uh, players who were good players for the club, some great players for the club, but were past their sell by date, and of course they had to be moved on, and that is never a a popular decision to to make or even to do, and I felt it was uh, that the older players were dominating the the young players, and of course uh, as long as that was going to continue, the young players... because I've always believed if you're good enough, you're old enough. Get, throw them in, let them sink, or let them swim. And I always felt that the uh, with uh, John Sillett, Peter Sillett, uh, Reg Matthews, the goalkeeper, uh, Peter Braybrook, uh, people like that, uh, mm. who were holding the young players back, who were, in my opinion, were ready to make their debuts in the first team. I mean, it was an amazing roller coaster
2: for yourself. There, you got relegated in 1962, went straight back up in '63, uh, finished as high as fifth in '64. Um, got to the League Cup final in 65. I mean, it was, it was an amazing time, but you, 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 filled, you filled that Chelsea team with people who have gone on to be legends of the club. I'm talking about people like Peter Bonetti, Ron Harris, yeah. John Hollins, John Boyle, George yeah. Graham, Eddie yeah. McCready, Terry Venables, Bobby Tambling, who yeah. for many years was the record goal scorer. It was an amazing and very youthful team. Yeah, Benetti, Shalito, McCready, Holland, Sinton, Harris, Koukos, Good Venables, Graham, and Tamley. An amazing team. Yeah. but Of all the times at Chelsea, what what do you think were your great achievements?
3: Um, my great achievements was uh, handling, as players and professionals, people at like, uh, Ron Harris and uh, people at like that. Uh, my biggest regret maybe would have been the, we couldn't hold on to Jimmy Greaves, the, the best goal scorer that I've ever seen. I felt that if we could have held on to him... Instead of transferring them to Inter Milan, or AC Milan, who either won the championship two or three times, the the
2: club got offered a lot of money, as I as I recall, nearly a hundred thousand pounds. And the player, if he
3: wants to go, or was, was it different uh, then? How, why couldn't you hold on to him? Well, kiss it was it was money again. I mean, the, I, I believe Jimmy, uh, if my memory serves me correctly, uh, he was on. Uh, I think he was on. £18, £20 pound a week at Stamford Bridge at the time. And he was offered £100 pound a week with AC Milan. So, I mean, even in those days, it was a, a big step. Although I believe that Jimmy didn't particularly want it to go because he's a lovely East End lad, Jimmy, and he, he, he loved playing for Chelsea.
2: Tommy, as late as, you know, the summer of 1967, um, I'm saying it again, of course, a Spurs fan, you got beat by Spurs in the FA Cup final. Within three or four months,
3: October, you've resigned. Why? Well, first of all, uh, I mean, even today, uh, Danny, at uh, Stamford Chelsea, every 18th of December every year, I receive from Harrods in London a £200 hamper from Chelsea Football Club. I don't know, because there's an ex-manager and they did a half-decent job for the club. Wow. And yet, I can ring up Man United and they charge me £88 for two tickets.
2: So you're you're making the point about the difference between the club. Why did you leave
3: Chelsea then? I left Chelsea because the chairman passed away. mister Mayor's God rest his soul. 'Cause I could never. The new fellow who took over from him was the name of. Uh, wait to hear this one, Bill Pratt. Really? I fell out with him at the first board meeting. And I said, uh, "Mr. Chairman, when I want your advice, I'll give it to you." Uh, so that was never going to work, Tom. Uh, was not it? Not going to work. So I knew, and I always said that to a lot of people. Anything, God forbid, if anything ever happens to the chairman, I'm off.
2: In between um, the, the departure from Chelsea and your arrival as the Scottish manager, are about three years where you're you're really moving around a lot. Rotherham, QPR, Villa. Could you just not find the right to, the right job for yourself, Tommy?
3: Too impatient. One of my biggest weaknesses, and I've got a few, is that uh, impatient. Uh, I love to be working. I hate to be idle. And when I uh, when I lost a job, the club sacked me, or I left on I own accord, I couldn't wait to get into another manager's job and that was one of my, my and still is to this day to a certain extent probably, one of my biggest weaknesses. In
2: 1971 you became Scotland's national manager, was that something you always had ambitions for
3: or uh, was it just chance that you became the boss? Actually it happened uh, quite by chance actually, I was a uh, assistant manager to Terry Neill at Hull City. Wow. And uh, I got a call one day from Hugh Nelson, who was the chairman of a broth Football Club in Scotland. I uh, knew very well from a plane days. And uh, he said, we're looking for a manager. Would you be interested in the job? So I said, yes, I would, actually. So I flew up to Glasgow, had an interview, and almost immediately was appointed manager on uh, £7,000 a year. The princely sum of £7,000 a year. For
2: Scotland, that was quite a lot. Absolutely. And um, uh, the... One of the things that you did, I know, was that Bob Wilson, of course, was Arsenal's goalkeeper in their double-winning side of that year, 1971. Yeah. And he he turned out he had a Scottish parentage, and you got him into the Scotland squad. And you you went about looking at, at the background of players. But this is this is a decade and a half before Jack Charlton started doing it in the Republic <laughs> of Ireland. Is that fair?
3: Yeah, that's fair. I think yeah. Bob was great. I mean, I'd see them playing obviously you know, for, for for Arsenal a uh, great player and a great goalkeeper, a great pro. And, uh, of course, at the time, Scotland, we had a lad called Bobby Clark, who was form-wise in and out. And uh, we were definitely desperate, as we are today, for a goalkeeper in Scotland. We've never had one, we? I we? Mean, I think Jimmy Cowan and Morton was the best we've ever had, actually.
2: You had, some, you had some great players in your team. That very first side that you picked, which was a Euro qualifier, against uh, Portugal mm. at Hampden, included Bob Wilson you mentioned there, Sandy Jardin, David Hay. Archie um, Gemmell. Archie, you brought back uh, yeah. Archie Gemmell in there, Billy Bremner, George Graham, yeah. Alex P- P- A
3: Gray.
2: A really, really fantastic, actually a very, very good team. I mean, uh, compared to now where uh, FIFA has sort of smoothed all these things out, how difficult was it to get the players to play? Would you have conflict with club managers or was it just an accepted part of the game that you went off and played for your country?
3: No, I think the greatest honour you can get is to play for your country, I think. I, I I captained my country, managed my country and played for my country. It doesn't get any better than that. And I get paid for something that I love doing, actually. And I think that's got to be the best time of your life, actually. And, of course, when I went to manage uh, Scotland, the players were already there because I'd seen them... In, in my English playing career and my managerial careers, more so... You knew them. I knew them. Yeah. And, and, and John O'Hare at Derby was another one. Uh, the only thing we lacked at the time uh, with Jimmy Johnson of Glasgow Celtic, God rest his soul, yeah. absolute little genius, David Hay. Yeah, I could go on and on and on. But there was nothing clever about it, uh, Danny. They were there. It was just a case of putting them in the team. Dennis Law, a lot of people said he was past his best. Uh, it's a matter of opinion. Great player, a great player for me for Scotland when I was, I played with Dennis for Scotland. And then, of course, to become manager, I said, well, they can even maybe do as a, a short spell or an hour during a game rather than an hour and a half. But he was a winner and a tremendous
2: player. You go on and the, the Scotland team is doing fine. And in the middle of qualification for the 1974 World Cup, there comes a phone call that changes your life, I guess, and... Um, Manchester United turn up you must have been or oh, maybe not how conflicted were you about carrying on with a promising Scotland team or joining one of the biggest clubs in England
3: very difficult uh, I remember uh, how it all came about was uh, I was down at uh, Man United were playing Crystal Palace Who Crystal Palace beat them 5-1 that day at Selhurst Park and I went down to watch a left back playing for Crystal Palace he didn't turn out as good as we thought he might be and at half-time, I was approached by Samat Wisby, God rest your soul, uh, saying he'd like to speak to him in the boardroom after the game with the chairman, Louis Edwards. After the game, they got hammered 5-1. After the game, went into the boardroom and said, uh, how do you fancy managing Manchester United? I said, but you've got a manager, Frank O'Farrell, who ironically enough, is godfather to one of my sons. Wow. And we played together, Frank and I, at Preston North End for about quite a long time. Uh, great pro, uh, lovely man, Frank. And, uh I And over to Frank, I said, I've just been approached to to, to to take over at Man United. Your job, what will I do? He <laughs> said, take it. He said, you don't, <laughs> he says, if you don't take it, someone else will take
2: it. So he must have known his days were numbered. Oh, yeah, yeah
3: he, 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 he did, actually. And the following Wednesday, he, he, he was sacked. And I flew down to, I took permission from Willie Allen, who was the secretary at the Scottish Football Association, United had gone about it the right way in approaching the Secretary for permission to speak to me although really I'd been tapped up at at Selhurst Park. So I went down to Morton Hall on the the Thursday morning and uh, was appointed the manager 15,000 pounds a year
2: Tommy you you find Manchester United I mean when you went to Chelsea you found a team full of old players who yeah. needed to be upgraded yeah. and you got relegated before you could do that Yeah. at Manchester United ironically you find almost an identical situation but the difference is Tommy that the players that are now coming to the end of their careers at Manchester United are legends not just of Manchester United but of the game in this country mm. the Charlton's the Laws yeah. the best yeah. I mean how did you approach the job
3: well, uh, similar to what I, what I did at Shell, I knew, and I will not mean disrespectful here, there was a lot of dead wood at Old Trafford at the time. Bobby Charlton made it very easy for me because he was one of the ones who would have gone, and they asked me for permission to speak to Sir Martin, the chairman, Mr Edwards, which I gave him, obviously, and they told him that he was finishing at the end of that year. And, of course, I got rid of one or two players, Tony Dunn and people like that, gave Dennis a free transfer, who I thought, with the greatest respect... Wonderful player. He uh, passed his back there. Yeah. a lot of players are and it's not a nice thing to see or do it happens to us all. And of course the supporters find that hard tablet to swallow. Tommy, me. I mean, you know, you did what you had
2: to do and yeah. the team the team was eventually relegated. Yeah. But let me ask you this question. How could a team go from being champions of Europe in nineteen sixty eight to relegated within five
3: years? Well, obviously, very easily, uh, you know. Uh, it's obviously, I think I think it was due to the fact that, uh, with the greatest respect to Samar, they kept a lot of the players past their sellback there, and they couldn't do the job any longer. The, the pinnacle of the career was uh, winning the the European Cup, of course.
2: Um, and famously, uh, United went down in seventy-three, yeah. seventy-four. I mean, hard to remember that. In, that was in the days when even big clubs in the nineteen seventies both. Manchester United and Tottenham both found themselves relegated at various times. Talk to me about the season you went down. What did you feel about that? And, and of course, the famously that Dennis Law scored that goal that uh, contributed to United's
3: relegation that day. Yeah, that, that's felt. Yeah, I, feel, I mean, I felt... No awful, I mean, I thought I might have got the sack, yeah, that, that yeah. was one of the things that crossed my mind, a big club, massive club at Man United, although I wasn't responsible for the players that were there when I took over I think that's something that worked in my favour when I started to bring one or two in, and let, let one or two go, uh, that didn't go down too well with Sir Matt God rest your soul, and the other members of the board didn't count, they didn't matter I mean, they had no idea they thought, they didn't know a semi-final from a centre-half <laughs> But Samat knew the game and, and he was he was nice and he was helpful and he disagreed with a lot of things I, I said and did. But that's fair enough. That's his opinion and that's my opinion. How difficult was it to run Manchester United with Matt Busby still at the club? Well, I think that's a thing I hope Alec Ferguson doesn't do. He's an incredible manager. He's done an incredible job. I hope he doesn't when he decides to call it a day, he doesn't move upstairs into the boardroom. That'll be the worst thing because that's that was the one of the worst things I think, with the greatest respect, that Sir Matt Busby did.
2: Uh, And uh, so, you you find yourself uh, with with a famous day um, going down uh, the the hundreds of thousands of kids on the pitch um, as United make their way down. Um, and you don't get the sack. So, in the next part of the show, Tommy, we'll be looking at the re emergence of Manchester United as mm-hmm. a major force in English football under your uh, tutelage, including promotion back to the top flight, the FA D- D- Cup disappointment of 1976, followed by glory in 1977. Um, when you stopped Liverpool doing the treble something for which every Manchester United fan still thanks you to this day plus your controversial sacking from that club you're listening to My Sporting Life on Talk Sport tonight's guest is the former Manchester United manager Tommy Doherty I'm Danny Kelly, this is Talk Sport and you're listening to a special edition of My Sporting Life featuring former Chelsea, Manchester United and Scotland manager Tommy Doherty now we've already heard about Manchester United's shocking relegation in 1974 and although he feared for his job, the club stuck with him. I asked him if the club's relegation was actually a kind of blessing in
3: disguise. No, people say that to me but I disagree with it. I mean, uh, it's the most horrible tab to have against your name as a coach and as a manager... To, to to say you know more or less admit that uh, it was a good thing that we went down. No, I don't think so at all. Actually, I think it was dreadful that we went down.
2: Okay, so in set the the following year though you, you bounced straight back up, which is of course the great trick in these things if you can mm-hmm. do it. Um, won the second division title in 1975, finishing three points clear of Aston Villa, and the team bounced straight up into the into the higher level. In set of the following year, you're third back in the first division, just four points behind the champions Liverpool. Who had you brought in and how had you transformed the team, Tommy?
3: Um, well, I, I kept most of the, uh, I would say, the fellas that I felt could continue to do a job for us for a couple of years to stabilise us a little bit after going down. Uh, people like uh, Lou McCary was a, a great signing for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, Steve Koppel, fantastic signing for us from Tranmere, 25,000 quid. Wow. Uh, Gordon Hill from Charlton for, uh, I think it was, £40,000 Martin Buck and I recommended them to Frank O'Farrell when I was Scottish team manager he was a great signing for Frank Uh, Alec Forsyth the fullback, uh, but players like Sammy McIlroy who were were, (coughs) excuse me were injured at the time Uh, they got fit again and there was him and Jimmy Nicholl big lad called Jim Holton six feet two eyes of blue big Jim Holton's after you yeah <laughs> uh, you no know, players like that you, and, know, you know I'm sorry to interrupt but my, my, my memories of
2: that team Tommy are that with couple uh, wide right Gordon Hill mm. wide left the likes of Stuart uh, Pearson. Ma- McElroy, Stuart Pearson, Pearson. Lou McCurry yeah. is yeah. that it was uh, a team that was it couldn't do it it could only do one thing it, it was designed to go forward Yeah, and, and, and in game after game after game Man United might concede a goal but they overwhelmed yeah. the, the opposition yeah.
3: with the amount of attacking they did Yeah, and little David McCreary and Jimmy Nichol were great players for me as well who have come up through the, the the youth ranks the great thing about us Bill Nicholson paid as a wonderful compliment It says the great thing about your team Tommy you don't know whether they're winning 3-0 they're losing 3-0 they play the same way they play the same way where? and it, well i mean the, the momentum uh, i'm particularly I'm,
2: I'm repeating myself really but but Copeland, and hell out wide yeah, brilliant a bit, it was it, we hadn't in english football seen two su- such excellent wide players yeah. uh, wingers as you would call them um in the same team for a long time and they, it was just it taught teams to pieces on good days
3: yeah and pearson and and, and jimmy greenough were fantastic and and brian greenough was already there of course you know and uh but they, they were great. To, I used to love Friday nights. We took them away before the games, at, even at home. And I thought, oh, tomorrow we're playing. I, I love watching us playing. Because and Hill were just an absolute delight to watch. You, you, you
2: that, that, that must be one of the nicest feelings you can have in professional sport when you're looking forward to watching your own team yeah, play. Yeah, and
3: I love wingers. I was brought up with wingers at Preston and uh, and Arsenal, you
2: know. And and Hill were as good as you got. Um, there is some disappointment before we get to the major triumph. In 76, your third... Um, but also reached the FA Cup final. It's one of those cup finals everyone remembers because Manchester United would have been pretty firm favourites. Very much so. Um, and of course, Southampton won the second division. Um, and Bobby Stokes, um, a player whose name will, is forever now associated yeah. with that one, with that one match. That offside
3: goal we keep talking about every time I see Big Laurie I that was really offside, you know,
2: Laurie. <laughs> so d- d- tell me how the day went for you and what, what your memories are of the game uh, leading up to that winner seven minutes from the end from Bobby Stokes.
3: Well, we, we, of course, we went down on the Wednesday to uh, to the hotel in London and, and uh, we, we just took it easy and just chilled out a little bit. And we felt not smug or overconfident. We just felt if Southampton play the best that they can and we play the best that we can, we'll win. And uh, we didn't. And uh, on the day, we were beaten by the better side, I might add. And you know something about football? Laurie McMenham is a lovely big man, mm-hmm. and it was nice. To, it wasn't nice to get beat, but if you're going to get beat, you don't mind being beat when it's a nice person that beats you. And Southampton Football Club uh, were always a lovely with Ted Bates and people like that. They were always a nice club to go to, and you were welcome. And sometimes you get a good hiding and a cup of tea, but sometimes you got nothing at all. But they were, and it was nice to get beat with nice people, if you know what I mean. The
2: I guess United now have gone a long time uh, since winning the, the European Cup, and I, I think they hadn't won a trophy then for nine for nine years, or certainly eight years. Um, so the disappointment was there. Uh, the following year, you, you do do something about it. You finish sixth in the league, mm-hmm. um, have another great run in the FA Cup, and the 1977 FA Cup final is one that, again, people who are of a certain age absolutely remember tell me about the run up to the FA Cup and, um, and and how you went into a game against a Liverpool side in contrast to Southampton where you, where you were the favourites Liverpool were going for the league the FA Cup and the European <laughs> Cup double yeah T- treble what am I talking about
3: three, treble, three actually, trophies treble yeah, yeah. yeah it's a funny thing about the FA Cup uh, Danny I think if your name is on the FA Cup you'll win it I'm a great believer in that and uh, I felt that day, it wasn't a particularly good match, uh, and I felt, I mean, against Southampton, I thought, I'd mortgage the house, it will beat them. And of course, we know the way it went. And then again, Liverpool, I thought, mm, this is my third cup final, will it be third time lucky or won't it? As it turned out, it, it, it was third time lucky, and a uh, lot was nice to beat uh, Liverpool who I've got great respect for as a club. And Shanks is a big mate of mine, God rest his soul. And Bob Paisley and Joe Fagan, lovely people. And, uh, you know, it it was nice to not stop them from doing the treble, but uh, it was nice to beat them and win the FA Cup.
2: Yet within um, uh, a month of that great triumph, Tommy, um, because of uh, matters off the pitch, you have been sacked by Manchester United. Uh, do Do you want to go through the events that led to that happening?
3: Yeah, it, doesn't, it didn't bother me at all. Well, far away then.
2: Right. You, you, it had become public knowledge that you were having what would, in those days was described as an extramarital affair um, with the, uh, the the wife of one of the other people who worked at Manchester United. Um, and in these days, I'm not sure that people would have, would have batted an eyelid, but in those days, people took a very dim view of it.
3: Well, <clears throat> excuse me. Well, I mean, it's one of those situations uh, where um, my... Uh, marital side was uh, not uh, good at all mm-hmm. uh, through no fault of uh, my ex-wife godress or so yes uh who was a nice person uh, just that uh, the marriage had sort of petered out so to speak for yes. the want of a better word and i only occasionally saw mary when she came to a function with her husband this, Laurie, is, this is mary brown yeah. Laurie brown who's yeah. who was a physio at man united right and she came to one or two functions not a lot and uh, we got chatting, as you do, and we got to know each other. And then things just got, to, I wouldn't say got out of hand, but uh, we both saw, we had a lot in common with each other. And uh, I asked her out once or twice, and she, she turned it down. And then asked her another few times, she said, OK. And we, we went out and saw each other. But it wasn't, uh, no one knew about it. Well, as far as we were concerned, no one knew about it. Uh, until I had told the board, uh, There was due to sign a new contract, and I told the board before I'd signed it uh, what was happening or what was going on, and uh, that's when it started to roll on a little bit. So you you took it upon yourself to tell the board
2: um, what was happening, and what was their reaction?
3: Well, uh, it wasn't good at all actually, because uh, I told because I was due to sign this contract, a new contract, and I told them, "I said, Look, I can't sign a new contract because this is a situation between." Uh, my Marischal problem, uh, Agnes, my ex-wife, and Mary uh, and I. And, uh, well, I mean, you could see their faces. I mean, they couldn't believe it, I like. And uh, Sir Matt was, was obviously very, very upset about it. And the rest of the board, I think in fairness to the rest of the board, they went along with Sir Matt Godress or so. And they decided to, in a very short space of time that uh, uh, we couldn't carry on like that. And I, I had to leave the club. What, do you feel, what did you feel about that at the time? I felt it was a very difficult situation for the club, uh, even at that time. But uh, I didn't feel that it warranted uh, the sack. I thought I should have been judged on my ability as a coach or as a manager. Uh, but I think there was a lot of intrigue within the club. Uh, there was friends of the board who I used to call them the junior board. Who stirred up any problems? That didn't. I think the director's wives had a, a, a bit of a say in it as well. They thought it wasn't a good thing. This is what I can gather from inside the club since I left, and uh, they decided that uh, they call it a day. And uh, I, was, I was called into a board meeting, and I was told that there'd been. Uh, relieved of my services. I
2: should make the point to the listeners that uh, this was no fling, that uh, yourself no. and Mary are still very much together.
3: Oh, lovely bit. She's the best thing that's ever happened to me, actually. Um, she is a star. Uh,
2: and uh, so, uh, when I ask you the question if you have had any regrets about what happened, your answer will probably be no. I should have done it sooner. Uh,
3: but Mary and I, I mean, she is. I can't find words to explain how I feel about her and uh, what she means to me.
2: Yeah, you've been listening to a special My Sporting Life with Tommy Doherty and a poignant moment to end the whole thing with uh, Tommy's beautiful tribute uh, to his wife, Mary. I'm Danny Kelly. Thanks for listening.